we have shared experiences in that. And I try to make work that kind of puts myself, yes, it's about me, but us, right? It's about this larger being, this community. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gilzambrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. I have some exciting news for you, print friends, before we kick off today's episode. If you haven't already heard, I'm hosting a print event. It's going to be in partnership with Print Austin, and I'm bringing a month-long printmaking celebration to Santa Fe, New Mexico, called What Else But Print Santa Fe. It will be in April of next year, and there's lots of ways you can get involved. We're going to have an international print exchange that's open to anyone, two juried exhibitions artists can apply for, and there's going to be a three-day print fair the last weekend of April. It's all up now on printsantafe.org. All calls are open, so check it out through the link in the show notes. And I look forward to hosting you all in beautiful Santa Fe. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been a leading innovator and manufacturer of printmaking products for over 30 years. Speedball's speed screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use way to screen print, no matter what your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or classroom, these ready-to-use mesh screens allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix emulsions or coat a screen. All you need is your design and you're ready to print. Pick up the Speed Screens kit for the most affordable way to get all the materials necessary to print your next masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Eddie A. Lopez. We talk about his childhood growing up during the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua and seeing art and prints around him as a form of political activism, how that changed when he came to the U.S. at nine years old, and taking the dehumanizing data of war and imbuing it with artistic meaning. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to make art, not war, with Eddie A. Lopez. Hi, Eddie. How's it going? It's going great. You, Miranda? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. And I'm really happy that we got to connect to the last SGCI briefly, and I got to know a little bit of your work there and get a chance to bring you on the podcast. And and congratulations again on being married recently. I think that's so exciting and that you've managed to, to fit Hello Print Friend in on your busy post-married life. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's great to be on. Yeah. Would you please introduce yourself just a little bit and let people know who you are, where you are? Absolutely. I'm Eddie Lopez. I was born in during the Sandinista Revolution and grew up during the Civil War in my country. I came to this country when I was nine years old, undocumented, through the Tijuana border. And I grew up in Miami, where I went to school, and I had my first experiences with printmaking. So currently, I'm an assistant professor of art at Diversity, where I teach printmaking design. And I, I consider myself a printmaker ever since my undergrad days at Miami-Dade Community College. Wonderful. And so you said that you grew up in Nicaragua. What role did art play 
in that part of your life? And, and was it a part of your everyday life? And, and as you spoke to, you grew up during the Civil War. Were you assuming you were seeing art maybe as, as protest, as political as well during that time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, art was everywhere. The revolution, the martyr revolution, the war, speaking out against foreign intervention. So I saw art on murals every time I went to church or school. Mm. I The songs that were coming through the radio were all of these revolutionary, beautiful revolutionary songs. Somehow, my, my family had a small library of, a small library, and in that library was a beautiful collection of art books that as a child, I just started devouring. And those were my first introductions to printmaking and just what the possibilities of art could be. Mm. And I say somehow, because, you know, I come from a family of campesinos, mm. and, but, you know, they, they my parents and my and sisters collected the, this little library and it was just this wonderful collection of, I think it was the Grolier series of art history books. And I, I loved them as a kid. Yeah. When you're talking about that art that you were seeing publicly, that was directly relating to the revolution, was any of that printmaking? Were they posters? Were they anything that you sort of maybe recognize now looking back as print media? Uh, yes. Yeah. So there were a lot of posters that were would be plastered on the walls throughout. Some of them, were, of course, were recruiting people to go fight mm. in the war. And, you know, one of the ones that, that most stands out to me was actually currency. So, mm. you know, the, 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 the bills that the new government had created, which were beautifully engraved. But what was really interesting was inflation hit the country hard. Mm. You had Cordoba, a one peso print bill and then that bill just the inflation cost it to be not worth that so somehow the government had to figure out how to keep printing different valuations and as a kid i remember seeing these bills sort of start growing currency so the one peso became a 1000 pesos or 100 mm, pesos mm-hmm. but you could see the printers kind of printing the extra zeros on them and the <laughs> it just it just hit me that this was a slim bill but somebody was manually kind of going back in there and just adding more numbers just to it adding zeros that's yeah. incredible um, yeah. So that I know was, in, in the, 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 again, the design of the bills, the print of the bills, I really enjoyed. And then just seeing that grow as people are just printing more and more zeros mm. onto, onto a, as a bill. Yeah. I, I always tell my friends that I was a millionaire as a kid because I would go to school oh, with 5 million pesos, we could buy lunch. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> so at nine, coming to the U.S., did you notice at that point in your life sort of a, a, a big difference from the way that art was every day in your life? In, in Miami, did, was it sort of similar for you or, or was that kind of a big change in terms of early artistic input for young or, Eddie? I think it's a big difference. I mean, I, I mean I've mean, i grown up with this idea that art is this activist tool, mm. right? galvanize people to, to get support. And then I come to the U.S. and... I'm, I, I mean, I love art and I'm taking art classes, but it's, it's like you're doing it for joy. Mm. Right? That was different for me um, where we're being asked to just, oh, just get colors. Here's paper. I mean, I'm a nine-year-old elementary school boy. And yeah, I'm being asked to just, just enjoy what I'm doing. And that was a little different, I think, definitely from, from what I had grown up seeing in, in Nicaragua. Right, right. I, I think that that's such a American message of you're unique and your voice is mm-hmm. unique and your the, the individualism right that's just sure 
sort of a two-headed beast in the U.S. that can, yeah. can harm and, and I was going to say harm and hurt. That's <laughs> like I think it does. I think it often does more harm than good. But it can sure. it can also you know give a, a good message too. That idea that that you have something unique to say and yeah. that it can come just from a place of joy rather than thinking about a collective and, and an art as a, as a catalyst maybe. Yeah. yeah, And it comes, I guess, from the idea of having stability, right? When, mm. when you have the stability, say one of the first things that struck me in this country was how quiet it was, like how calm mm. it was compared to the, the opposite of that. And it was, once you have that stability and, and you're living, whether you're coming from a war torn country to one that's not, or from even say, if you're living up in a, mm. there's a lot of instability for one reason or another, you, you reach stability and then it's it's you 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 afford yourself a luxury that you didn't have before, which is the ability mm-hmm. to make art that's that aesthetic experience is that beauty that you're creating just born out of joy or or you know, yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah. Well, I mean that's that classic hierarchy of needs everyone gets yeah. in psych one oh one, right? And the you need a lot of things stable and consistent in your life before you get to the point where you can say, what's in my heart that's yearning to get out to create something beautiful in the world. That's yeah, quite a privilege. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So you said that you came to, to printmaking in your undergraduate experience. What do you think it was about printmaking that captured your attention and like continues to? I mean, I'll be straight out. I've always been very grateful for the professors and teachers I had. And honestly, the reason I'm a printmaker today is because of my professor in undergrad, Alberto Mesa. He's a Chilean-born poet printmaker. And he was just such a very charismatic figure. He was always, of course, trying to get people to enroll in his printmaking classes. Mm -hmm. And I had him, I think, for... I believe the first time I had him was for a 2D class. And he was trying to get students to his printmaking class. And in under, I wanted to be a painter. And, you know, mm. still kind of dabbled in painting. I, I, I took his class. He, he his expertise is in taglio, so etching and dry points in the works, and I loved it. And then as I started considering, oh, which keep going? Do I want to keep taking painting, printmaking, both? He gave me this wonderful anecdote. He's, he he said, if you if you lift up a rock, you're gonna find ten painters and one printmaker. Hmm. He was kind of encouraging me to consider follow a path where not as many artists go down, and mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed that. I, I, and I, I do agree. Thanks. So, as printmakers, you know, yeah, you you look on good. Yeah, a lot of people are making painting and so forth, but printmakers were just a much more selective body. Mm, yeah. So I, I connected to that very much. So yeah, and of course, I think because we're one out of ten, there's that sense of community that runs so strong. Yes. So. I, I don't know. I haven't spent a lot of time in the in the painting world, but I, I work at a, a commercial galleries and they show prints, but many other things. And so I I have a lot of interactions with artists and other medium through media through that side of what I do. And I've never seen a painter light up when they meet someone else who's a painter. <laughs> it's not the way I do with yeah. peers. It's like, oh, you're yeah. a printmaker. What do right. you do? You know, it's just this yeah. excitement. Kindred spirit. I did just, I not, again, I, I do love painting and, but there's to somebody who dedicates themselves to this, but there's an, a, there's an, a, there's an attraction to it for its processes, the smells of the shop, the, the solvents, etc. 
yeah, there's just something there that said for me is somewhat magical. And I'm, I'm really glad I chose that path when, when confronted with that choice. Mm, yeah. And so from your, your undergrad and you had these good mentors, which is always so important and, and many yeah. people's stories. At that point, did you know you wanted to do graduate school and follow that course as well, kind of right away? Yeah, that's a great question. Waited. I I, I finished my undergrad. Well, I went from a community college to a state school. I went to university in Miami. I studied under Richard Duncan, who's a printmaker. And I I, I decided to wait. I started graphic designer for a while. I was still make my art and prints. But I I had at that time felt like I just needed more experience. Mm-hmm. Then uh, about 2011, I decided I, I wanted, just wanted to go back to grad school. I wanted to focus my time and efforts on my own art. And I started exploring options. I, I felt that in undergrad, I had gotten a good sense of intaglio printmaking. So starting under Duncan, under Mesa, they're both wonderful printmakers and focused on intaglio. And I wanted to just get better at silkscreen and lithography. And it so happened that a protege of Richard Duncan was teaching at the University of Miami, Lisa Drost. Mm. And I talked to her. And saw to Miami, really enjoyed it. So I applied and went back to school. I got my MS in Miami. But I didn't yeah. wait about seven years from finishing my undergrad. I, I really love hearing people's stories when they do know that they need to take that time yeah. before they go to grad school. And as someone who had a bit of a winding road myself, I went to a couple of colleges. I did community college first because mm-hmm. I... I just looked at the prices at the state school sure. and at community college and I was like, why would I pay that much when I can get, yeah. and, and, you know, these days there's people who are teaching community colleges, they have PhDs. I mean, they have the same qualifications as you you get. It's just, um, you know, at a, a 10th of the price. Yes. And, and so I, I did that and I, I wandered a little bit and I do think that that was so valuable to me before I entered grad school because grad school is so different. Yes. From undergrad. And if you go into it with that expectation, yeah. you're really going to get disappointed and slapped around a little bit. I mean, I think people get slapped around a little bit in grad yeah. school, no matter what. Yes. That's part of the reason why you go. But yeah, maybe you could kind of speak to more specifically the ways in which having that a bit of a professional career affected how you approached this other side of your education, you know, the, the side where things change a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, I finished undergrad and I worked as a designer for for a long time. And I went up in that field. I was an art director. I had a team of people working under me and mm. making a good living with it. But it, I just wanted to focus on making my own art. And as much as, you know, I, design is a very collaborative thing, it just wasn't my artwork, right, per se. Yeah. So... I, I knew that I, I, I needed that in my life. So I, I go back to grad school, say that it was a humbling experience at first because mm-hmm. after having run of designers and making a decent living, going back to earning the stipend of a grad student yeah, and being told, hey, today you're going to go clean paint walls and catch <laughs> this and work at a gallery. Honestly, I, I, I'm so glad I did it. I, I It humbled me into just all the nitty gritty things that, make the art world run so i i felt i i got very proficient at installing shows at cleaning up after a show is done and the walls and doing the lights and mm, then mm-hmm. framing and it 
it, I just it felt so immersive in the stuff really wanted to do that I I was like I'm so glad I I I made this choice. Oh, it was hard, you yeah. know, after having a, a nice up and all this, and then you having to room and again make a living on the the pities of a, of a grad student stipend. It, it that was tough, but I I would not think twice of doing it again. Definitely, and and I think you really know it's what you want at that yes. point. And so those sort of sacrifices are maybe a little bit less when you understand yeah. I'm not just doing this because this is what you do after your BFA. I'm doing this because I've been out there and I've seen that life and I know I want this. I think that's exactly. really significant. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've always, in this country, we think of education as an investment and mm-hmm. I, I kind of wish that mindset was kind of changed because we know it should be about learning and yes, you're investing in yourself yeah. eventually. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. Did you know what you wanted to make work about? Because you've got such a strong voice and theme through your different series now. You seem very clear about yeah. what's moving you to make work right now. Did you go into your grad school experience with, with that sense or did that kind of come along the way? I mean, somewhat. I mean, I, I started to hear a sense of the type of work I wanted to do as I was in my adult, my early 20s. I think I started coming into terms with the idea that having learned about art being political or socially mm-hmm. conscious too, that I knew I needed to keep making work about that. Uh, and I slowly came into terms of, I guess, the direction I went with the work, definitely in grad school further. And, you know, I, I was confronted many times about, you know, for your work, should art be, you know, what... Uh, this is socially active or could it, or, or should it just be like this beautiful aunt? so all those things i think i was definitely dialoguing with as i went through grad school but yeah i, I was pretty clear in grad school though the type of work i wanted to make yeah that is a an interesting question i think about should art be aesthetic distracting joy mm-hmm. or should it be political and activist yeah. that yeah so yeah, I think that we, we kind of balance that stand that it can be just it can be one of the tools to impact the, the, the public sphere, right? I mean, mm-hmm. There's always this idea that if you want to make a change in the world, you can go work at a nonprofit that dedicates to whatever yeah. that causes. You can donate to these causes. Mm-hmm. I think we do all those things and we can definitely make that also kind of benefits that cost somehow. Uh, yeah. A trade-off. Yeah, both and. And and it really is moving, I think, when you think of the ways in which major works of art have been forces to push the needle politically. Sure. I mean, there's a huge history of that. And Absolutely. there's something a way art can build a narrative, it can humanize, it mm-hmm. can kind of get in through the back door of people's cognitive perception, I think, in a way that... If you just said, it's funny that the a woman who I was interviewing earlier today, she does a lot of work around ecology and pollution and the politics of that. And she said, if I just said to you, don't use plastic, like that's not going to do anything. Sure. You know, <laughs> like no one wants yeah. to hear that. But art is an incredible way to get people to pay attention. Absolutely. And connect emotionally. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and so I'd love to now kind of talk a little bit about your practice specifically and and the current practice. And, and so 
a lot of your work comes from creating these amalgamations, these layers of data, these layers of collection of almost the documentation or even sort of ephemera of war of, of, and, and sort of capturing it in a way that's a bit unexpected. So can you speak to your process? Absolutely. So among the things that I enjoy with printmaking is just the layering process, whether Mm. you are building an intaglio plate where you put on some hard ground and you etch some lines and then come back over it and etch some more and so on and so forth. Uh, Just this idea that you're slowly building up your images, right? Mm -hmm. And I did that with intaglio a lot. And I wanted to keep experimenting with other means, right? Serigraphy, lithography, and just the way you build an image to me just was fascinating. The first time I came to this amalgamation was just by chance. I was actually finishing up my undergrad and I did this piece that was called One Year in Iraq, where mm-hmm. I was representing, uh, you know, individ- the casualties of the hour back in 2003, 2004. And I did these of paintings of soldiers that had died in the war using motor oil, digital prints. And I wanted to do the same thing with the Iraqi civilians, but I, I could find photographs of the U.S. soldiers and paint them. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't do the same thing with Iraqi civilians. And there were 400 U.S. soldiers that perished in that first year, but there were 10,000 Iraqi right. civilians that perished in, in the first year. There was no way I could possibly find an image for each one of them. So I just started doing research as to how do I do this and it and uh, i came to this software that was a face mixer that allowed you Mm -hmm. to grab multiple faces and kind of blend them into one and i really enjoyed that layering process so i just grabbed photographs off the web of iraqi men women and children and i combined them together to form this composite portrait of the average iraqi civilian Mm. and then i did that ten thousand times so I, i enjoyed that process i enjoyed what made and it allowed me to put a face to a statistic and then I kept experimenting with that idea of using the um, process, the layering process, and bringing in a computer to help me do so. I started doing other series where I built composite portraits. I started with portraiture a lot. I did portraits of soldiers that were fighting in, in, in the Iraq war. Doing This was in grad school, doing them with just silkscreen. So just putting a lot of transparency base on portraits of soldiers getting like 10 portraits and then lining them up, registering them with their eyes and mouth and layer one by one, layering them out. And it worked great. I, 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 the way the, the, the process resulted in these composite images. I did beauty queens. I did anything that I could kind of build these composite images of. I then started researching, okay, who else is doing this? You know, oftentimes as artists, we're yeah. in vacuums and we realize that we're touching a point that somebody else has touched before. So I found the work of Nancy Burson, a number of other artists, even say what Jasper Johns had done mm-hmm. a number of these amalgamation prints. So that tradition and that aesthetic I really connected to. And then I started building composite images of... What I found is that in building the composite images, the, these... Mm-hmm abstracted, almost non-representation images, non-objective images came out of all of these layers. So I decided to start focusing on images that captured trauma, that captured images that captured misery in some way, and kind Mm. of having grown up in war and misery, kind of with those memories, and out of those memories and something beautiful. So I started doing images of cops, 
I did images of jails. Again, all these places were I can think of that were, are, are unfortunately miserable places of existence. How kind of work with that and then use the, the printing process to build a, a, a beautiful object out of that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I'd love if you could speak a little bit more to what sort of happens with the layering. What's yeah. what's that that outcome and and how maybe your intention for the perception of of your viewer. Mm-hmm. But then also I always love to hear unexpected receptions as well, yeah. you know, when you are yeah. interfacing publicly with the work. Of course. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I've enjoyed with the process is that I, I'll, I'll, I'll rate a selection of 50 images of, of a conflict, mm-hmm. say the Iraq war. I'll pick, I'll, I'll find uh, specifically the, uh, I usually try to works by a photojournalist mm-hmm. and, uh, and then feed them into the algorithm and there's a huge element of chance. I don't know what the result is going to hmm. look like when it goes through. So I'm really open to that happenstance. You know, I, I did have a background as a painter. In, a, in, in the paintings I did, I was an abstract expressionist painter, if you will. So the aesthetic is the, the end result of when the algorithm goes through and gives me the, the result. It is kind of like an act color work. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really enjoy, again, bringing back the idea of joy and making art, I making process. Now, I am dealing with this very heavy subject, but I'm trying to make art that kind of speaks both to processing the trauma, right? So the, the, the concepts of dealing with that, uh, but also building these aesthetically pleasing images out of them. Mm. Uh, after that's built, I usually then decide you know, which printmaking process is going to be used to, to, to make the prints. So if I, I feel that the work work better at very large scale, I, I'll do a digital print of it. Medium size scales, I usually do silk. So I'll, I'll, set, I'll color separate them using Photoshop into all the multiple shapes and layers. Uh, and then also lithographs for the, some of the smaller sizes. Mm, yeah. And then when you're showing the work, do you find that people... I mean, it's always such a complicated question, right? Because we we show work in this context with usually a didactic or a trifold or something that can mm-hmm. give people a bit of a key to understand the work, or they they know your practice, right? And that's why right. they're they're coming to the, the the public displays of the work. But do people sort of know what they're looking at if they don't have that explanation for in your experience and 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 how does that sort of feel to you as an artist after going through all of this to create something that is so abstracted, but so rooted in, and really intense human experience? That's a great question. And it's always some, some balancing out with some of the earlier pieces were very abstracted. And obviously without the context, all you're seeing is this beautiful looking object with interesting patterns, colors, mm-hmm. composition. They're very much formalistic images. And uh, you know, in, in getting feedback and critiques from mentors and friends and colleagues, I, I did feel like when I needed to context. So mm. when I display the pieces, usually they have, in, in my solo shows, I'll include the material. Sometimes they are placed right next to the piece. So, for example, with, with the Nicaragua Civil War pieces, the photographers that photographed and chronicled the war, some of their books are placed right next to them. Mm. So that the titles of the pieces are after the names of each of the photographers or, or journalists that, that chronicled the war. 
you'll see the work right there. And the connection is made pretty quickly between that, that, that holds these memories. The later pieces that I've been doing now, I, I, leave, uh, I leave fragments of the original so that you'll see in a corner, corner something that kind of shows you that in the midst of this cloud of patterns, shapes, etc., there's this conflict going on. So you'll mm-hmm. see a soldier holding a gun. You'll see, uh, I did a piece about the January 6th insurrection, right? You'll see hats and shouting and stuff like that. So yeah, there, there's hints that are given to the view. I've right. been putting more hints, if you will, into the pieces yeah. in my newer work. Leaving the breadcrumbs. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you ever talk to the photojournalists whose source material you're using or show them or get feedback from them? Yeah, great question. So uh, yes, a few have spoken to, and yeah, they're they're open to them. I, I've worked with journalists in the U.S. and Nicaragua. The Nicaragua ones know that I've been working mm. with their work. Some of the bigger names here in the U.S. I haven't reached out to yet, but it's in my plans to to do so. Yeah, and you know, doing this work and spending all these time with these images from around the world, from here at here at home during January sixth to Iraq. Do you ever think about the kind of interesting moral questions of photojournalism and and the idea of documenting people who have passed away, of course, without their permission (laughs) or even necessarily the families usually, because that's the nature of it, right? And then... It, it then it's sort of another question and, and you're using it because I think there is that abstraction. But yeah, it, that's in there somewhere, I would guess, for you. Oh, completely. You know, I think I think at one level, I am absolutely dealing politics of representation, right? <laughs> Susan May, Susan May Sala, sorry, Susan Sontag um, oh, yeah. did a wonderful book regarding the pain of others, mm. which just deals with that. Should we be capturing people's miseries on chronicling them on, on, on photographs in for in perpetuity right so that that mystery is recorded there and boy it's on one level i'm kind of conflicting with that i'm, I'm kind of erasing the images because having mm. lived before it's not something you want to repeat it's not something you mm-hmm. want to experience first and foremost so i it's kind of like an erasure like this merciful erasure of that past at the same time i, I I can't ignore the fact that it's a, these photos uh, of, of conflict are galvanizing and they're necessary. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, with the conflict in Ukraine that's happening right now, we would not know that this ha- conflict is happening. You know, those of us outside of you know it's happening if it wasn't because we are being told yeah. and shared these images. There was the issue, this family that was killed by a mortar round. They were fleeing Ukraine. Wife, a mother with her children. New York Times journalists captured the moment that they mm-hmm. were killed. And uh, the Times was able to find the husband of the, of the woman who agreed that the image needed to be shared hmm. because he, this would at least let the world know what, what had happened and what was happening. That's a rare moment where the Times, the, the photojournalist is saying, this is such a tough thing to capture. What do I do? Is it right for me when sharing mm-hmm. this? And the husband agreed that it was the right thing to do. And I always tell, when I, when I show the work around, I tell people it's not that, you know, we shouldn't be using these images, but we should use them with a respect and care that, that the moment demands. Mm, yeah. I I think at one point I came across some writing about how part of the reason why the Vietnam War was so unpopular, how we think about it as this first major, almost 
universally despised conflict was because it had the best photojournalism by far yes. that far and that they Absolutely. had journalists on the ground yes yeah. mm-hmm. and showing the images unfortunately of, of the casualties both mm-hmm. the Vietnamese casualties and the U.S. casualties you know I think that we we are in this country we're too often confronted with a sanitized version of the truth right think of for example of the, sh- the school shootings that are happening in this mm-hmm. country I think it'd be a different experience if we only saw the, what, what those guns do. Yeah. And if as horrible as that would be, people would be confronted with that horrible truth and hopefully do something about it. But mm-hmm. uh, we, we, we're prolonging something because we, we're not we're getting too sanitized a version of what the reality is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I think about it too is in the context of someone who has, how do, how do I put it? you know, some mental health stuff going on, like a lot of us are, and a lot of us do. And that what is my moral role as a person to bear witness versus also protecting my own mental health? Like I, you know, you you bring up the, the school shootings and it's, for me, I'm just like, look, I already know what my politics are on this. I already know how I vote. Like, I feel like I, Sometimes I'm like, I feel like I don't need to take that in. And it would just ruin me for like a week yeah, if I did. And so it's just, yeah, that it, we live in such an unprecedented time in terms of documentation and access to information. And yeah. the morality of it is we're really, I feel like, figuring it out one step at a time as we yeah. move forward in terms of what do I what do I owe the world in being informed? What do I owe myself self in being informed? And what do I owe myself in actually being still functional too? Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's all yeah, really I, complicated. I, I, absolutely. I think self-care is so important. People always ask me about my work. How do I do it? You know, and, and, I, and I think of other uh, colleagues of, of mine that are also doing work that's tough. I think of Miguel Aragon, for example, mm-hmm. and some yeah. of what he's doing with the casualties of the narco war. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I, I tell my, uh, people that I do step back, right? I, I mean, I, I am making these pieces that are, are heavy, but I have so some other pieces that I make that I, that I do show around too, but they just deal with things like poetry too, mm-hmm. that are just kind of like, I, I love Latin American literature and Nicaragua is known as a land of poets and just as an homage to these writers, I just and I make prints based on the text that they make and it, it's a way to kind of, continue my practice Mm -hmm. but to kind of give myself a break from the heavier subject that I usually deal with yeah yeah I actually interviewed Miguel a couple of weeks ago so he'll be he'll be coming up or maybe the time people are listening to this they will have already listened to his (laughs) and you know we talked about that a little bit too you know because I think your your practice has some some crossover in that he's using the as you say that he's using these images from Juarez. And I remember he spoke to the fact that this is happening, whether or not he's dealing with it and, sure. and being from there, he can't ever kind of ignore it. Yeah. And I don't know if that rings true at all for you too oh. as well. Yeah. You know, having, having grown up in a civil war and seeing it happen elsewhere. Right. Um, I, I do, I do feel like I cannot ignore that reality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my home country went to a civil war in 2018, still under a, a terrible police state. So that, that trauma isn't gone. It's that's there. And, and I, I agree totally with that statement. 
you know, who these pieces because we can't ignore the fact that it's it's still happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's, it's almost like a kind of like a moral obligation to deal with that subject and 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 present it. Yeah, do you think of it at all as a a form of self therapy or self healing? So, so the, the pieces that deal with kind of like the the nostalgia of the revolution. Mm-hmm. I think definitely. So the, the, the my country was in the 70s and 80s. So that's yep. past. And yes, they'd come to terms, this, you know, deal with what happened. Mm-hmm. But it's also, unfortunately, in, in, in Nicaragua's case, we're also dealing with the press where this, this right. past has become the present. So it, it, it's, yes, it's definitely a therapeutic thing, but it's also dealing with what's happening now as well. Right, right. Yeah, it's, yeah, therapy, the word therapy kind of implies it was this thing that happened that now I'm processing. Yeah. But I'm sure you still have family in Nicaragua. I'm sure you still have connections there that, I mean, it's not, there's no, there's no full stop yet. Yeah, on that experience. Mm. So I guess in a way, it's, if if we're going to use the therapy context, one of the modalities is cognitive behavioral, right? The idea that it, Uh uh-huh. Yeah, you're not just dealing with what happened in the past, but how do you modify the present and future, right? It, it uh, yeah, I, I hope that some of my work kind of deals with that too, right? It has some CBT built into it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, yeah. So, how do you kind of this? Realize <laughs> like this sounds like kind of a dark question. I don't mean it to be, but yeah. there's so much kind of awful things going on in the world. Yeah. And how do you sort of decide, okay, like this is something that I feel like I do need to work on. This is something that I'm drawn to this over that. I mean, it's, there's, because we live in this crazy time of access to information from everywhere. Yeah. How do you choose that? Like, okay, like I, this is, this is what Eddie needs to work on for the next sure. little while. Yeah. That's a great question. I think life did that for me. It was undocumented from Nicaragua. And I, I, I honestly, for the past six, seven years, I focused a lot on what happened in my home mm-hmm. country and its relationship to this country. So I, I've really focused a lot of efforts in dealing with the archives and memories of the Nicaraguan revolution, the civil war, the U S involvement in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then again, life, the, happens again uh, in 2018 the country goes through this instability and i just i'm, I'm still working on and focusing on that mm-hmm. i have started doing things like you know a, a piece that dealt with the january 6th insurrection I that deal with what we went through with the covid shutdowns because those are i mean they're traumas that we collectively went through as mm-hmm. a globe which is it's a rare thing, right? All these wars in pockets of the of the globe. Yeah. And COVID, there was this 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 huge trauma that, that we're still dealing with. Yeah. So, okay, I, I have to create works that respond to this. But for the most part, I mean, I, I do feel that my being a Nicaraguan American kind of puts me in a place that that where I, I need to be responding to that identity, to those memories, to that past, to that present. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's often what's just sort of front of mind for you. And of course, yeah, yeah. like all people that varies, right? That's a, a an ever changing. Yeah. Thing. yeah. And, you know, one thing that I tell my students too, is that when you make work, I mean, it, it definitely is work about yourself, right? Mm. Because, I mean, yeah. My is Nick American. I, mean, I am Latinx. I'm also Latin American. Mm-hmm. And it's also about 
but it, it, it's you seeing yourself also in a community, right? I'm not the only Nicaraguan American. I'm not the only other person, right? There mm-hmm. is a big community of us and, and we have shared experiences in that. And I try to make work that kind of puts myself, yes, it's about me, but about us, right? It's about this larger being, this community. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that it connects to those individuals and then beyond. Yeah. So what are you sort of looking forward to? What Do you have any projects on the horizon that you want people to keep an eye out for? Or anything sure. exciting? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a number of things, actually. So I, I, I've been proud of the work I've done, but the, there is one thing I'm still crossing my fingers will happen, which would be the my first solo show in my home country. Oh, uh, wow. It was scheduled for 2020, but we know what. A couple of guys. Yeah. So COVID postponed it. And then the next thing that has postponed it is political instability and persecution mm-hmm. in my country. So the gallery has decided to hold off on, on showing the pieces. But I, I'm just really eager to, to have my first showing down in, in Nicaragua. That's one that I'm probably next. Uh, and then I've got a show. I'll, I'll be in the next biennial in Houston, which is great. I'm happy to, looking forward to that. And write-ups and books coming out in 2023. Essays by some historians on picturing peace and refugees that I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. And I, I always do like to ask my guests who have activism as a central part of what they do. What do you want people to know? You know, like what can, like what can people do? Is there anything we can do? You know, if, if you had the chance to say, I wish, I wish everybody knew this about what's happening in Nicaragua. Like what, what would that be? You know, that's a great question. So I think the issue of Nicaragua will have to be resolved by Nicaraguans. Right. But yeah. I, I think the big thing I want people in this country to note is that there is a big influx of immigrants coming from Nicaragua and Central America. And having been an undocumented immigrant in this country, we didn't come here just because. Right? Mm-hmm. We're coming here because there's a great need. And the biggest thing I would say for people in this country to do is just support those immigrants coming through the border. Because there's a lot of them that are unfortunately perishing as they try to cross the Rio Grande. And I just be aware that I feel like the best policy can have towards immigrants is to have an open open door. Welcome mm-hmm. them, shelter them. And most immigrants, once the issues have resolved in their home countries, they go back. Yeah. So my family went back. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the civil wars. So yeah, I think be aware of the fact that there's a lot of Nicaraguans coming through the border as are Salvadorans, Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Mexicans, and they're in need. So the best thing you can, one can do is support those um, immigrant organizations mm-hmm. down the southern border and ask for and, and vote for administrations that are humane in treating those immigrants. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's so significant what you're saying about what's happening in Nicaragua needs to be solved by Nicaraguans. And I think that you could take that and put that framework across a lot of countries that the U S for some reason has decided to roll up our sleeves and bring a bunch of heavy artillery into. But I really love that message that, but when people are coming here and that's, that's when, okay, like this is now when it, it, it does affect us. And it does because something that like, okay, like let's, do the best that we can given this. And yeah, it's, I feel like we could do a, about 
you know, 20 more podcasts on the specifics of the border politics and, and all oh, of that. God. And cause it's just, it's, it's such a mess. And there are, there are really, I'm sure great investigative reporting politics out there or podcasts out there. And yeah, just how insane it is. And, you know, hearing stories of people who are working there with immigrants and doing intake interviews and, you know, just sitting there being like, trying to will them just saying like, you just have to say these magic words and then I can let you in. But right. people don't know, like they're, they're, no, they're no. being honest and it's Absolutely. just like, it's just nuts. That's just an insane way yeah. to run. It's like, you need the secret passcode. Of course. You know, you know it's, about the projects that I'm eager in. So I started one, I've been doing an artist that I exhibited at Madison. Edward Bernstein set up this exhibition called refugees. Mm. And so by happenstance, last summer, my, my sister shared with me my asylum papers. So oh, when I was a nine-year-old, she, she gave me all my asylum papers. It had to do with the fact that one of my nieces was also going through the process just in 2021, fleeing from Nicaragua. Uh, so I, I got a hand of my asylum papers. I hadn't seen them. And just going through that and seeing the bureaucratic process mm. of what it is to allow somebody who's in a war to come into this country... And, you know, looking at, so I'm making a series of artist books on this, but I also had a chance to travel to the southern border last summer. So I was there with all of this fresh in mind, took photographs of the border in Tijuana and El Paso, and looking at the papers and how they they ask you, okay, how are you coming into this country? And it, I came in as a pedestrian, it's pedestrian mm-hmm. entry. And then, okay, why are you visiting? Are you a tourist? Are you coming here for work reasons? And mine had other checked and the other reasons. Wow. It's, it's mind-boggling to see those things. It's like, yeah, you know, trying to kind of categorize human experiences in these really weird ways. Just but anyways, I'm making work on that. Just kind of totally. the idea of these forms that I was handed and how they captured my reality as a nine-year-old, you know, in a midlife individual and seeing myself already. I, I have a stable place in this country and but seeing others that are coming through mm-hmm. that same experience i think that's that's work that i'm looking into work making now yeah it it reminds me when i was looking at your work and reading about it in preparation for our chat i had this sense of this data collecting that happens around mm-hmm. these real human tragedies yes. it's so strange and sterilizing and the facts and the figures and the statistics and the way that you say you have to sort of distill this intense human experience of being a refugee into checked boxes. Yeah. And it, it just, that does not capture at all. Like the emotional experience of traveling through, you know, uh, thousands of months to, to get to a safe haven or, or, or any other, right? Yeah, even say a photograph, it just doesn't capture that that experience. It, it, so I think that's where we as artists mm-hmm. come in, make work that that in some ways tries and, and and respond to and capture that emotional experience. Yeah, I was definitely thinking that that's in a way what it seems like your work does is it 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 almost completes the the cycle of of starting with these human experiences that then gets has to be turned into data points. And then through your practice, you can imbue it again with the emotional tenor and reality of what it actually means. And that's what art can do is that it, it yes. can 
can sort of inject some humanity <laughs> back into the way people just collect data about war and refugees and pandemics and grids and checked boxes. And yeah, as an artist, it's, it's so important to be able to capture some of the actual humanness, of what happens in the world. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's a great way to put it. I, I always say that I'm not the best at speaking about my work. I'm pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I, I make it. So thank yeah. you for this. Words. I think it's perfect. Oh, oh well, thank you for, for the work that you do. And yeah, just before we close up, please let people know where they can find you and follow you and learn about perhaps your solo show hopefully happening here and all of that. Thanks. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I keep a website that's eddialopez.com and just uh, folks log in there. They'll, they'll find my my uh, work, my information. And I'm also uh, teaching here at Bucknell. So if they uh, Google my name, just Eddie Lopez. <laughs> yeah. The first Google result. So please get me in those uh, that number one spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do do feed the Google machine. Click on yes. Eddie's name. Yeah. <laughs> you why. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I, I'll put links to that in the show notes. Thank you. And uh, thank you so much for, for talking with me. And it's been really nice to chat and learn more about you and your practice. If you liked today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards for you right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friends sent you. But as always, the very best way you can support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Kevin Haas. We talk about what it's like to change your aesthetic signature mid-career, the use of words in art and finding that balance for not letting them overpower visual messages, and the sci-fi dystopia found in the Rust Belt. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.